This is a Federal News Network podcast. Three outstanding women at the Center of Federal Cybersecurity Efforts received awards from the nonprofit Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology. After the group's awards dinner, I caught up with the honorees. Earlier, you heard from CISA Director Jen Easterly. I also spoke with Kemba Walden, Principal Deputy National Cyber Director in the Office of the National Cyber Director, and Army Colonel Candace Frost, Director of the Joint Intelligence Operations Center of U.S. Cyber Command. I asked Walden, whom you'll hear first, about human diversity in the cyber field. You mentioned that it's hard to be black, it's hard to be a woman, it's hard to be a black woman in this. What does that mean and why is that? You know, cybersecurity is a complex space. The transgressor is complex, the systems are complex, and so it requires innovative diversity of thought and diversity of experience. And when you're the only one coming with a particular perspective, that's challenging. And so I'd love to grow that diversity in the people part of cyberspace. Cyberspace is three uh, equal parts. People is a great big part of that. And so it is difficult being the only voice in that space that's different from others. And what in your background makes you think differently, do you think? Because I'm curious about the connection between thinking and perspective and just simple appearance. Well, diversity of thought. So I consider myself a fuzzy techie, meaning that I am a product of liberal arts education. I don't have an engineering degree. The last time I coded anything, I was in sixth grade. Technology is obviously a big part of cyber, but I understand relationships. My superpower has a lot to do with being able to communicate effectively, to be able to write well. And I bring a different set of experiences. I've lived in different countries. I don't have an engineering degree. I am a lawyer. So I think critically. I think differently. And ultimately, we get to the same place, but it's just bringing a different set of skills to the table. And regardless of education, you are a smart cookie. (laughs) I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) And I wanted to ask you just about the need for communities to thrive via cyber. That's a little different perspective than we normally hear, which is data protection and identity protection. Those are technical words of describing it. You have a more holistic, outcomes-based approach in your thinking about cyber. Maybe just tell us briefly about that. Absolutely. I don't do cyber just for the sake of cyber. It's all interesting and curious. But, you know, I bring it home. It's the communities that thrive in this space. We're all interconnected. Our refrigerators now are connected to the Ethernet. We have thermostats that are smart. They're Siri and and Alexa that talk to us in our homes. My daughter has a Fitbit. My mom does online banking. It's just ubiquitous. It's all around us. And so it's important, in my view, that we make it safe so that cyber delivers what we want society to deliver, which is freedom of expression of thought, safely occupying that internet, interconnected space, safely installing a refrigerator in your home, and not having to worry about the consequences. That's why I do cyber. That sounds like a great selling point for more minority, disadvantaged, marginalized communities, HBCU students. That seems like a good sell for them to come into these fields. It's an imperative. It's not just a sales speech. It's an imperative. We all occupy this space. It it doesn't matter what community you're from. Cyber isn't something that exists in an ivory tower somewhere. Just like politics is local, cyber is local. But it's also international, right? It knows no boundaries. The thing that scares me the most is willful ambivalence, right? Thinking that that's someone else's problem. No, it's everybody's problem. It's the CEO's problem. 
and it's the assembly workers' problem. We all have a part to play. Making sure that everyone understands that and that they feel safe in this space allows us to deliver the promises that the internet expects us to deliver. And what's going to happen at your office under Chris Inglis in 2023 and 24? You know, we've been sprinting a marathon since we got stood up. We're at initial operating capacity. We expect to be at full operating capacity soon. We are thinking about the strategic investments that we need to make now to make sure that we have a resilient cyberspace, and that's resilience in the technology that composes of cyberspace, the people, and the processes, the doctrine, who's responsible for what. So what are those strategic investments that we need to make now in order to deliver that promise? And do you have an open hotline to CISA and to the Cyber Command? <laughs> you know, the cybersecurity community in Washington is actually quite small. And so, yes, I do have a hotline to all elements of cyber, including CISA and Cyber Command. And notably, the other departments and agencies all have a part to play. Health and Human Services, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, we are all connected in this space. It's my job to try to rationalize how we all function together. Kemba Walden, Principal Deputy National Cyber Director in the Office of the National Cyber Director, I also spoke with Army Colonel Candace Frost, director of the Joint Intelligence Operations Center of U.S. Cyber Command, starting with... How do you interact with all of the other cyber elements that are in the government? Because Jen Easterly from CISA mentioned of half a dozen or so, maybe? Yeah, actually, it's a real benefit to both be dual-hatted with the National Security Agency and Cyber Command, because the power of both organizations collectively really work out the tentacles of those two powerful organizations, reach out far and wide across both the federal government in totality. And then we have great partnerships with other agencies, institutions, and organizations across academia and the public sector as well. So we're very fortunate to have a tremendous amount of information sharing. How bad is TikTok as a threat? Well, I probably can't speak to that, but there's a ton that ICTC actually writes about that. Because it originates in China, and you mentioned China tonight when getting that award from ICIT. And so when I think of China, I think of TikTok as the leading edge of all of their cyber espionage. I think when we look in totality of kind of where we're looking at nation-state threat actors, China is our number one threat when we look at cybersecurity. And we specifically focus a tremendous amount of the work that we do on China because there are threat vectors in many different agencies and organizations that China has used to try, unfortunately, to steal a tremendous amount from private industry in our country. And that is an area that we continue to be aware of. And also, we work together to defend our own networks and then to help the rest of the nation with that. I think of Russia as the source of cyber attacks, seeking money, kind of a crude way. And I think of China as having at-scale espionage for purposes of national advancement. And even though they're both harmful, it's a big difference between Russia and China. Fair to say? That's a very fair statement. And a moniker that I've often used is China first, Russia always. Both of them are of grave concern of what we do. And we've got to continue to fight the good fight in cybersecurity. So what's ahead in the next fiscal year and the year beyond that for your agency? I think for our agency, we're continuing to look at protecting and defending the Department of Defense Information Network, for which cybersecurity commits to ensuring that our space is completely secure, and then also ensuring the protection of critical infrastructure in our country. 
And you're in the Army. The Army is struggling to meet recruiting goals, and that's mostly for soldiers that might carry a rifle. What about the cyber function in Army? Is that a selling point? And what about the talent needs and how are you filling them? I think in totality, and as a nation at whole, we understand that there is a great need for talented cybersecurity individuals out there, not just the Army and the rest of the Department of Defense. This is an, an issue that anyone in this space understands that there's a talent need, and we've got to continue to both recruit and grow this talent. And it's kind of a challenge we put out to ourselves here at this event. You mentioned the need for a cybersecurity mentorship renaissance. What's that? I think it's a great idea to think about how we reach out across the entirety of students that are starting, you know, kindergarten all the way through 12th and even in the college years. There are tremendous opportunities to really reach out and say this is an incredibly exciting space. There are tons of opportunities and there's only growth potential here. Army Colonel Candace Frost, director of the Joint Intelligence Operations Center of U.S. Cyber Command. Earlier, you heard from Kemba Walden, Principal Deputy National Cyber Director in the Office of the National Cyber Director, both speaking following the awards gala of the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology. We'll post the interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
I don't think I'm still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, and I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those too and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right? That kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that. And then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, those, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave and we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. Your training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right? And diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature.